Hello everybody, Ron here. I'm your host for the Starting With Scripture podcast. This podcast episode is called Helping the Hurting. A lot of the lesson today will come from the book of Job. Now the book of Job is classified amongst the Old Testament wisdom books or books of wisdom. So it's appropriate to pull wisdom from it for our our lives even today. I'm going to start with Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. That's Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. Starting in verse 6, it reads, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now sons of God there means uh, angels. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put or have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now what follows is a sad tale of all the the devastation that occurred in Job's life and For the sake of brevity, I'm going to summarize what happened. Satan destroyed all of Job's property. Satan killed not one, but all ten of Job's children. Satan attacked Job's health. Job's relationships with his friends suffered, and possibly also the relationship with his wife. You see, I'm teaching this lesson, teaching this sermon, because there are plenty of Jobs and Jobettes out there in the world today. Thousands of years later, we all frequently encounter people like Job, men, women, children. We have hurting people all around us. They're inside the church, they're outside the church. There are people in pain and grieving because of death, divorce, relationship loss, job loss, home loss, illness, financial problems, and more. And to this list nowadays, we can add COVID-19. I want to return to the story here um, and do some more teaching from it. And get back to what Job and his friends said. Again, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to have to summarize 
the response of Job's friends. There just isn't time to read all the verses. And actually, it's paragraph after paragraph. And Job's a very long book. So one thing that uh, Job's friends said in so many words is, God killed your children because they were sinners. They got what they deserved. Another thing that they said was, you're suffering because of your sin. You need to repent and beg God for mercy. And another uh, thing that was said is something like, things could be worse, and you deserve worse, because you're guilty of sin. Those were the types of messages that Job's friends gave him. His response is recorded in Job chapter 16, verse 2. That's Job chapter 16, verse 2. And he said to them after they got done with all their commentary, he said, Miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters are you all. Here's this man in pain, and they're saying things like that to him. So I have a thought-provoking question, or at least it's intended to provoke thought. Are we miserable comforters in the church? Are we? Or are we good comforters? Are we like Job's friends in our attitudes, accusations, advice, and that would be unsolicited advice? Do we spew theology and scripture at people? That is hurting people. In my 30 years in the church, I've heard people say things a lot like what Job's friends did. Here are some of the things I've heard. Some of these are paraphrases and some of these are uh, exact quotes. I have all the answers for your problems. Just forgive them and you'll feel better. That, uh, that last one there, just forgive them and you'll feel better, that's theologically questionable at best. But people say it. People in the church, that is. Next one's a, a direct quote. You're depressed because you don't pray enough. Next one's also a direct quote. You're too blessed to be depressed. You wouldn't feel so bad if you hadn't sinned. It could be worse. Others have it worse. Just repent from your sin and you'll feel better. Have you been reading scripture lately? This verse in the Bible says blank. That happens a lot. People hand out what I call scripture prescriptions and they think that if somebody reads a couple of verses it's going to make them feel all better. Again, theologically questionable at best. Have you prayed about it? Remember, these things; these are things that are being said to somebody who's deeply in pain. This too shall pass. It's as though we in the church sometimes think that when we rise up from the baptistry, God not only gives us salvation, but he also gives us church therapist licenses. 
and somehow we're qualified to hand out life-changing and life-healing advice. I have too often heard Christians listening to someone's problems for two minutes in the church foyer, in the church hallway, in the fellowship hall, and then give them what they think are the solutions to their problems. Now, in my, my graduate level education, uh, ministerial and theological education, I've taken a number of counseling courses. I've taken more counseling courses than most ministers do. And my professors have all been doctors and uh, all been licensed and so forth, Some, all of them actually with decades of experience. One of my professors had 50 years plus of experience. Now, all of them say the same thing. When someone comes to them for help, it takes two full, at least two full 50-minute sessions to figure out what's wrong and start to put together a treatment plan. So these experts in mental health and emotional health take two full sessions to diagnose somebody, to begin to put together a treatment plan as opposed to some people in church who think they can take two minutes and start giving out this free advice. You see, not only did Job rebuke his friends when he said, Miserable comforters are you all. The Lord himself rebuked Job's friends. Scripture reads, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. That sort of implies that he would not accept their prayers. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. When we look at the things that Job's friends said to Job, if we're intellectually honest, we can see that Job's friends were just wrong. And they were wrong in many ways. Job's friends were factually incorrect. For example, Job hadn't sinned and his sin, his supposed sin, was not the reason for the calamities that befell him. Job's friends were theologically incorrect. God himself said so. And Job's friends did not know his full story. So overall, Job's friends gave Job unsolicited advice and admonition based on an incorrect an incomplete understanding of Job's situation, as well as being based upon false theology. Sadly, we have 
people in the church today in the 21st century that behave much like Job's friends did. Now I ask, is that a good way to build a church? It absolutely isn't. Now why does this matter? As I mentioned before, we've got uh, Job's and Jobettes out there, uh, people inside the church, people outside the church that are hurting. And that means that we have hurting people like Job in our own mission field, in our own backyard of our church buildings. So when we behave like Job's friends, there's a good chance that these people that we're trying to reach are going to say, y'all are a bunch of miserable comforters. I don't want anything to do with you. And that's absolutely not the way we should be. We think about it, there are people out there that are hurting because of property loss, income loss, financial problems, loss of loved ones, relationship problems, and illness. And it's difficult to know what to say and know what to do, but we ought to be prepared because hurting people, hurting folks are all over the place. Now I've spent a lot of time thus far talking about what not to do, but I want to spend some time now talking about what to do and how to do it. And there's one principle that if you remember nothing else from this sermon, I'd, I'd ask you to remember this one, and it's found in Romans 12.15. That's Romans 12.15. And it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. I'll read it again. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Now the second part, weeping with those who weep, pertains to this lesson, of course. Rejoicing with those that rejoice, that's a good thing to do. People share their good news. We ought to rejoice with them. Now, the weep with those that weep clause in, in that um, in that sentence or that verse there is sometimes translated mourn with those who mourn or grieve with those that grieve. And that is an overarching principle that we should utilize. Now, so far I've talked about the, the things that Job's friends did that were wrong. Um, but, but actually, they started out by doing right. You see, if you look at uh, Job chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, that's Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. It reads, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, him being Job, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuthite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. You see, Job was a mess. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And those things... Uh, tearing the robes and sprinkling dust on their heads. That, those were ancient ways of showing emotional anguish. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So for the first week, Job's friends were actually doing 
what is said in Romans twelve fifteen, and that they were they were weeping with Job, they were grieving with Job, they were mourning with Job, and they kept their mouths shut. The problems came when they started talking, and that came later. But one of the things that they did also in grieving with them is they they were physically present. And that's something that we can do with grieving people. We can be present. We can spend time with them, be present, limit our talking. This notion of uh, being present and spending time with people is also reflected in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. That's the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. And it reads, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that idea is there. Uh, in this case, it's going to visit people that are hurting uh, orphans and widows. First century people probably would not have thought that this verse was limited only to orphans and widows. Uh, they don't think as we do that to them things weren't such a, a formula. Uh, they weren't so formulaic, that is, but orphans and widows, people that were hurting, people that were disenfranchised, people that were in affliction by extension. So the idea here is go visit them, go be with them, spend time with them. And that's principle one, be present and spend time. Principle two is listen. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a courageous hero of, of resistance against the Nazis. He once said, or possibly wrote, Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians, because Christians are talking when they should be listening. He who no longer listens to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. Now Dietrich uh, said these words about 80 years ago and they're still true today. A lot of times we Christians are just running our mouths and talking when we just simply should shut up and listen. There is a verse that helps us if we follow it and it's found in James chapter 1 verse 19 that's James chapter 1 verse 19 and it, it reads know this my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger that's quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger see if we if we slow down and we wait to speak it's going to be easier for us to listen if we slow down in our emotional reaction, in this case anger, if we delay it, it's going to be easier for us to listen. So we should be very quick to hear, but very slow to speak, and that will help us to listen better. So the second principle, the second thing we can do with grieving people is listening. And by the way, uh, in, in psychological research, one of the most healing things that can be done for a person who's hurting is actually just listening. The third principle is to be loving. Now I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 
and it reads, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to go through some of this here with some commentary. Love is patient and kind. I cannot imagine a group of people or a kind of person that needs more patience and kindness than somebody who's grieving. Later in verse 4, is not arrogant. I mentioned earlier the, the advice uh, pukers, the advice spewers in church who hear somebody's story for two minutes and then have the solution in the form of free advice for people. That's actually arrogant. No one can do that, nor should anybody do that. Can't listen to somebody for a couple of minutes and then have the solution, even though they're not asking for it. Verse 7, love bears all things. Sometimes when you're listening to somebody who's hurting or listening to people that are grieving, they might say some things that are unpleasant. There might be some vulgarity that might offend your sensibility. Um, or maybe they'll tell you some things that you just don't want to know about, some details about themselves or their lives or somebody else. This is when bearing all things comes into play. Uh, you might just have to bear with some things that you just don't want to hear and don't want to know. Continuing with the third principle, we ought to teach the truth in love. Some Christians, including preachers, seem to think that the best thing they can do for anybody is to be constantly throwing out Bible verses. And I actually think that notion contradicts Scripture. It says in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth with patience. It means uh, speaking the truth with kindness. It means, going back to the definition in 1 Corinthians that I read earlier, it means not seeking our own. A lot of times people who are throwing out Bible verses might seem like they're being righteous and holy, but actually their motivation is their own anxiety. That is a self-serving motivation. Speaking the truth in love includes patience. So we ought to wait sometimes and not throw out Scripture. Sometimes it's more important to be Jesus than to preach about Jesus and preach about His Word. There will be an appropriate time to teach, but we need to be wise about that. I'll give an example of uh, an inappropriate time to preach, possibly a couple of them. One inappropriate time is, um, let's say, for example, a mother has just received word that her daughter died, her 16-year-old daughter died in an auto accident, that's probably not the best time and not a good time to go preaching at her or to go teaching her. It's probably best just to shut your mouth and go sit like the friends of Job did the first week. Just sit, be quiet, mourn, 
help her with what she needs. Another example, and I know this is going to bother some of you probably, and that is um, a lot of times when preachers preach funerals or preach memorial sessions, memorial services, they, uh, they go overboard with the scripture. They try to make it evangelistic, um, hoping to reach people that have come to the funeral service or come to the memorial service who are not Christians. I think that's actually inappropriate. Non-believers expect there to be some verses and so forth, but when you are beating somebody over the head trying to convert them uh, who's there to grieve, you're actually taking advantage of a captive audience, and I think that's just it's wrong. It's not teaching the truth in love. So summarizing the, the three principles... One, again, is be present and spend time. Be present and spend time. Two is listen. And three is be loving. Again, one, be present and spend time. Two is listen. And three is be loving. Another reason that, that these things matter is um, not only for the the external environment of the church or the mission field it also matters for people that are inside the church, whether they be members or visitors. See, some of our churches are so emotionally toxic because we have friends of Job going around spewing advice and they're, you know, they're wrong for doing so, that people cannot be their genuine selves. People cannot express their genuine emotions because it's not safe to do so. So rather than saying how they really feel, rather than saying what they really need, they put on fake smiles and pretend everything is okay. And those aren't the kind of relationships that we want at all in the church. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. Appreciate uh, you listening. God bless.